So when we move back from 5, 6, and 7 into 8, 9, and 1, we're moving from the, um, the trio of Enneagram styles that tend to have more trouble with power and have that general but expressed differently tendency to project their power and have a little knot in the will. Move back into 8, 9, and 1 and that's not really so pertinent. Power is not really the issue so much or having at least a running doubt about your own capabilities. That's pretty well assured. You feel fairly well comfortable within your capacity to take action. The area of difficulty is in the mind, is in correctly conceiving of action, is in thinking clearly before you take action, and instead getting into a kind of muddle. Now, all three of these styles, eights, nines, and ones, have a tendency to forget themselves or erase themselves or not quite check in with themselves and get in touch directly with what I want. That tends to get overlooked. And it's not even like twos, threes, and fours where a person might know what they want and then they reject it in themselves. Like a two might say, oh, I'd really like a glass of water and then judge it and say, oh, no, that's selfish. And then you push it down. At least you knew what you want in the first place. But with eights, nines, and ones, the broad general tendency, and it's a matter of degree in each individual, is to not see yourself in the first place, not realize that the self is there, that the self wants something, and maybe even have a tendency to hide the self as a sort of defense. It's a kind of self-erasure. Now this can be fairly obvious with nines, and when we talk about nines it'll be clearer hopefully, where the tendency is to come in and, and blend with the environment and blend with the woodwork and become sort of ambiently attuned to the room and merged with the various elements in the room. Meanwhile, presenting a pleasant outward facade or doing this in a pleasant outward manner, kind of erasing yourself and like the Cheshire cat, leaving just a smile hovering in the air. Within the eight style, the reaction to feeling invisible is a little different. Some eights will recognize that they feel like they're not there and then maybe try to overassert the fact that they are there. Unlike nines who just may become passively resigned and give up and just go with the flow and ride with the tide. And then with ones, the tendency is to displace your preoccupation off onto principle and rules and order and that, all that stuff we talked about yesterday. Now on the high side of eight, I mentioned last night, I always think of this as the best of power. Not necessarily the best of action, what I was talking about with threes, but rather the assumption and mastery of power and using it for constructive purposes. To build things, to make things, to create win-win propositions for themselves and for others. And to oftentimes operate on a large scale as well. To be quite comfortable within their own skin and their own abilities to go ahead and initiate things and create things out of nothing. And I mentioned tycoons, usually tycoons aren't very healthy eights, but the ability to wield power and to wield it in a constructive way is really the best of this style in my opinion. And uh, eights can be very loyal friends, protective friends, and be genuinely sympathetic and concerned for others. They can also be radical in the true sense of the word. Being able to go to the root of something and to maybe stir it up, reforming and reshaping and re, uh, reorganizing the system. And not really having a built-in intimidation towards authority or even an anti-authoritarian attitude that is necessarily personalized. There's a lot of questions sometimes about the difference between counterphobic sixes and eights. Because counterphobic sixes can demonstrate a pretty eightish manner and they can be hostile and aggressive, especially towards authority figures. I used to say a thing that I think I'd read in an Enneagram book, which is 
counterphobic sixes and eights. If you get them in a fight, the counterphobic six will back down at the last minute, have an attack of good sense and realize one of us is going to be killed or we both could die. But actually, I've noticed sometimes counterphobic sixes don't back down. I don't get angry very often, but once every four or five years, I get really steamed. And the last time this happened, I was prepared to die. And I, I knew I was crazy and it just didn't matter. You know, I was so furious. But eights will get engaged in a sort of duel to the death sometimes on the low side of it because they feel like their entire personality structure is based on winning, is based on coming out on top, is based on winning the fight. And the other thing about counterphobic sixes is they are more likely to think of themselves as victims and eights almost never think of themselves as victims, have a self-image like that. So within the eight style, you tend to think of yourself as the victor, but also as the responsible one, the strong one, the one whom everybody depends upon, or who is self-responsible in some basic way, like not looking to anybody else to do it for you, knowing that you have to do it for yourself and being committed to doing that. It's the negative extreme of it, is the abuse of power. Instead of the high side and the constructive use of power, you have greater tendencies to abuse power in the service of your own personal defense and the belief system that it's necessary to be strong, that you have to mobilize yourself because you live in a dangerous world. A lot of eights will talk about living in a war zone, and if you listen to their, their language, listen between the lines, you'll hear war metaphors come up from time to time. Or uh, other entranced eights, they'll talk about living in a severe natural environment like the, the desert, the jungle, the ocean, something like that. And they'll say, I'm the biggest fish in the sea, or oh, I'm a junkyard dog, or the king of the jungle. And they'll self-describe as animals, metaphorically. And it's a Darwinian Enneagram style. And especially down at the, the bottom of it, when somebody's in the trance of it, then they kind of look around the world and pretty much figure the world is a kill or be killed proposition. You know, only the strong survive, you gotta be on top. And then you can't really risk friendships in the jungle, so what you do is you make strategic alliances, which have a certain sympathy, but your friendships are based on watching each other's backs. That's the kind of friendship you excel at and have the most natural tendency towards. But on the high side, that changes, and there is, still is a protective quality and a desire for mutual protection, but there's quite a bit more trust, and you know the act of making a friend is not injurious to the person's survival or anything like that, in their own opinion. But anyway, Part of what happens when eights go into their trance is they tend to then start to think of themselves in a two-dimensional kind of way. There can be a kind of numbing out. The thing I talk about in workshops is uh, seeing yourself as a caricature and seeing other people as a caricature, almost like those drawings that they have at uh, carnivals, you know, where there'd be a street artist who takes a look at you and then exaggerates some of your features and comes up with a cartoon version of your face. Or if you think of wartime propaganda, how the, the other side is presented. When I was coming up, you know, there was, there was all this stuff about Vietnamese and, you know, the Germans in World War II, the Germans and the, uh, the way they depicted the Jews. And the, it's that kind of thinking. It's that kind of distortion of humanity. And then it's a defense as well. It's a way in which the person is kind of protecting themselves. And then the connection to the high side of two really ameliorates that, really helps with that. Connection to the high side of two brings a kind of inherent sympathy and capacity for compassion and for identification with the other and for switching places in the way that I was talking about before where you can float over and feel somebody's feelings and identify with what they're going through and 
be able to then perceive them in a three-dimensional way rather than seeing them as a caricature or a cartoon or something else, an animal or something like that, then you, you see them as a fully-fledged human being with you know, three dimensions to them and recognize and sympathize between your common humanity. It's like you can change places with other people and identify with them, whereas the tendency in the trance is to disidentify with people and to be overbounded, to have too strong of a boundary and to have too much of a self-possession almost, to be too self-referenced in these NLP terms that I've been using. Sometimes this is expressed in therapeutic personalities. A number of famous therapists have been AIDS who, and people who created therapies out of nothing. The one would be Carol's father. Another would be Moshe Feldenkrais. Another would be Fritz Perls. Milton Traeger. There are a number of eights that I've met who have done well in life and one of the first things they do then when they realize they have enough money is they start a foundation or they contribute to some kind of social service or they do something that they set something up that benefits a group that they have chosen as a group they want to protect and usually that group is people who are young, inarticulate, defenseless, could be animals, could be children, but they in a way remind the eights of their own vulnerabilities. And there is a, a kind of nurturance that the person can genuinely extend, especially within the high side of the style. When, it's, when they're more in the trance of it, they're actually taking care of themselves by metaphor. They're extending care out to other people, but the other people or the, other, or the animals or children or whatever remind the aid unconsciously of their own vulnerabilities, which they tend to displace, which they tend to put outside of themselves, which they tend to attribute to various people in their environment, and then maybe even have those people interact and watch as their externalized vulnerabilities are having a, 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 an exchange or a relationship. Sometimes an eight will sit in the back of the room and they're new to my workshops, and they'll watch me with this fierce look in their eyes for about an hour. A look uh, Dashiell Hamlet said could crack an oyster at 50 yards. <laughs> what they're scrutinizing me for is how I'll handle power. And they've already kind of identified other people in the room who are powerless, and they want to see how I treat them. And then if I pass muster, then it's okay. Then they start to relax and the look kind of goes out of their eyes. But for a while, there's this close scrutiny because they want to know if it's safe for them to be vulnerable in the context. And one of the ways they know that is by watching how the workshop leader or the person with power in any kind of context treats the powerless. So it can be a real unconscious issue sometimes. And then there is a, a connection to two within this that's implicit, where you, you try to take care of other people as a two might, but actually in the same manner we were talking about yesterday, twos are really taking care of themselves by metaphor, and so, so are eights. Female eights often get trained out of the excesses of this style, by the way. It's something worth noting, and I've got it in my next book, but I haven't seen anything written about it. But a lot of female eights get trained to play it down to protect other people from their own aggression or to tamp it down and make it invisible undisguised. Now this is not always the case. I've had friends, for instance, who had ferociously powerful Jewish grandmothers who were eights and damn it, they ran the family. You know, it was a matriarchal subculture that they lived in or at least family system that they lived in. And they were just no-nonsense forces of nature. But a lot of women get training to be ladylike, to play down the, their power and to not intimidate the men, to not be too overtly aggressive in manner and presentation. And uh, oddly enough, even though it might sound sexist, I find that this is somewhat helpful. A lot of women get too training anyway, from culture to culture. I, I see it everywhere I go in the world. 
This has got myriad drawbacks, but in the way that it dovetails with eightness, it actually kind of tones it down a little bit because it brings social skills and it brings the, the impulse to identify with the other person first before you jump or before you have your reaction. In some ways, it's a good thing. Yeah. In the lesbian community, though, often you have to take into consideration the, the, the particular culture that eight women who are lesbian have more permission. To not, be that way. Yeah, uh, absolutely. To you know, yeah. more right. embrace that kind of excessive element. No, it's good I didn't say it in all cases. <laughs> <laughs> and I think actually the difference between female eights and male eights sometimes in, in appearance and manner can be as big as the difference between male twos and female twos. People who will stumble on it sometimes have a hard time identifying uh, male twos. It, it plays out much differently, although ultimately they're twos, but the outward expression of it sometimes is quite different. And same with eights. And then a less healthy version of this connection, it can devolve into codependence, and the person can be over-identified with their partner like a two might and be unable to disengage. So that everything your partner does, you have a reaction to. You kind of can't not react. And then also in the aggressive dependence, uh, dependence that disguises itself, doesn't think or act like it's dependent, but it really is. In the aggression of that, also there can be a worry about things like betrayal, like I was talking about before. You're 15 minutes late for dinner, what happened? You know, what are you doing, what's wrong? And it's almost like a paranoid reaction, but without the fear. It's not truly fear-based, but it has the contours of paranoia, a kind of suspicion, a kind of anticipation of betrayal. And if you think back again to the metaphor living in a jungle, then you might find yourself checking out people at any given time because it's almost like anything could turn into an emergency. So there's a stronger tendency to overreaction, a kind of hair trigger quality about it and an emotionality about it that can be strong. You can get scrutinizing and upset and maybe volatile. There's also a kind of narcissism that is implicit within the eight style and there is a pride implicit in the two style. Both styles share tendencies towards self-inflation and so those can combine unhealthily in a kind of inflated sense of self. It doubles the pride. Doing for others and feeling like you are responsible for others in a codependent automatic way like they can't do for themselves. This can be a trap that you fall into also where you just automatically have to be Ms. or Mr. Fix-It. You have to be the one who takes charge in the situation. If something's wrong, it's your job to carry it on your shoulders and right the situation make people happy or whatever. Also within this connection to two there can be a tendency towards possessiveness in a way I've already implied that. In the close scrutiny of the other partner and the disguised dependence on the other partner there is a, a desire to control them or a desire to dominate them or a desire to know where they are at any given time. You'll never get away from me, you know this kind of thing. Bad stalker movies. Uh, eights have a tendency to, as a defense, to deny what they feel or to deny the impact of what they do or deny that something happened. I didn't do it, I didn't say it, and besides she deserved it. <laughs> Let me just move on and talk about eight's connection to five. On the high side, this connection brings a kind of mental clarity, a, a coherent systematic style of thought that might be hard for the person otherwise, when they're in the trance of their style anyway. Eights become more strategic and sort of systematic. There can be a propensity sometimes for mathematics, for instance, that you sometimes would associate with fives. I've known a number of eights who are physicists, who, who have an interest in science and scientism. Or you could exist in academia with this, for instance. 
and it helps you to think clearly, it helps you to think more comprehensively, it helps you to think more technically. This is a useful thing when you're in the trancier style because your thinking tends to get especially muddy and clouded and you don't really see what you're not seeing. The connection to five structures your thought somewhat, connects you to a, a thinking style, you might say, and then also it helps you disassociate, helps you pull back from narcissistic overreaction, pull back and mull something over and be evaluative instead of reacting with your instincts or reacting with your emotions with your heart or with your body. A lot of eights say that it helps them in a situation where they may have lost their temper to stand back and count to 10, try to disassociate from the circumstance. And they find that with a little bit of focus, they can do it, that it's there, that it's available. The visual field is sometimes enhanced this way too. Sometimes the person can see more or even have auditory information in some way that they can carry with them and they can use. They can store a lot of it, sort of in the manner we were talking about with the fives last night, being able to see the, the whole picture and then all of the detail within the picture. That sort of connection is enhanced and helpful. There can also be a more philosophical orientation, sometimes a studious orientation. They can be bookish, autodidactic, self-learners, and pursue knowledge, be interested in knowledge, chase, chase things, follow their interests in some ways even if it means being self-educated. They can also withdraw to recharge their inner life too and take time off and pull away from the world and make little spaces for themselves where they can think clearly but also feel and also ruminate and meditate or go quiet for a while. And this is often a very useful thing as well. The connection also takes the edge off the eight's addictive tendencies because there can be a tendency towards addiction within the style in general and then more in particular with a seven wing, I would say. It's not always an addiction to substance, but there can be a desire to eat or to smoke or to drink or to take drugs or something, or at least the impulse, even if it's not played out. Depends on the person's background and training and experience. But nevertheless, a, a kind of craving sometimes that eights will report having struggled with in their life at one point or another. And the dissociative abilities of the connection to five kind of help with that as well because essentially an addiction is kind of like that instantaneous overreaction that I was talking about, you know, where you feel compulsive and it helps eights to stand back from it. Again, count to 10 before they do anything. Cultivating this connection, they might consume less and grow more moderate in their behavior. Also, it helps with forming long-term goals. It helps with being able to see into the future and somewhat strategically rather than just reacting in the moment or looking forward to the thing you're going to do next week but not really thinking beyond that. Because in the core style, it can be very immediate. Like I was saying before, not much time traveling as with five, sixes, and sevens. Not as much temporal displacement where you're, you're living in the past, you're living in the future. It's pretty much an immediate orientation, partially because you feel the world through your body so much. There can be a, a distinct possibility of depression on the low side of this connection. It can take the form of somebody wanting to hold themselves up in their house and just not go out of doors, and they can become a little bit paranoid, like a five might, like a schizoid five, worrying about other people's intentions, or staying at home and plotting and scheming against my enemies, being in my castle. And within that, there can be a powerlessness sometimes that the person feels, a worry about uh, what other people can do to them. And it's a little incongruent with the rest of the eight style. 
they can also be self-punishing within this. The depression can sometimes be triggered by somebody with the eight style realizing that they had blundered through life and they had injured a lot of people and denied it at the time and then suddenly they're brought face to face with it and they realize, oh my God, I have injured a lot of people. And then they go through a kind of total collapse. It's almost like scaffolding collapsing or something. It's like, if I've injured a lot of people, that means I've been wrong. And up until then, the person needed to believe that he was absolutely right. Otherwise, he was absolutely wrong. That's a kind of malformed thinking that can go into it sometimes, too. You know, thinking in opposites, thinking in polarities. This is a tricky area, because if you have a, a real unhealthy eight who plunges into this, they may go into spirals of morbid regret, for instance, where they're sitting around kind of haunted and thinking about the past and wanting to apologize to people and real sorry for what they did. And they go into a sort of stupor, and it's a withdrawn stupor. And it's actually something, if you have, if you have eight clients and you see somebody going this way, it's actually something to interrupt if you can, because it's an action-oriented style, and it can be a somewhat violent style within the, the trance of it. And so there's a distinct possibility for suicide. It's really worth monitoring and keeping the person somewhat buoyed and in the world and responsive to the world around them. But there can be a kind of deadness and then the intellect gets twisted in the service of self-accusation. And again, that's the really low side of it. So maybe could we throw it open? Can you talk about anything you relate to or don't relate to or <laughs> affirm or deny? Okay. Well, I relate to all of it. So I been the high and low side of both. Which do you want me to start with? I've been the high and low side of both, and <coughs> whether it's been in actually pursuing it or conceiving it. There's so much that goes on in the mind that isn't acted out yes. that actually feels very good and very bad. In particular, I was also reared by an eight father, sexual, eight, seven wing, just the same as I am. And there wasn't a lot of room for me to be fully an eight, seven. And I was told that I was like my father. And that wasn't a compliment. And my mother didn't particularly like the characteristics that I displayed that were like my father. So I learned to uh, have the same kind of power through the eyes, uh, through what I didn't say, didn't do, or the way I said something. And it, ironically, my father could receive the full um, energy. Right. I could, right. you know, we could go toe to toe. I could just, my brothers were not. I have three brothers. I was third child. Uh, and they would just be amazed. You know, how can you talk to dad like that? But my dad, being an eight, it would just neutralize it. And it might escalate a little bit, but then whatever piece of truth I said, he would honor. Even if it was only one of 10 things. And often the escalation on my part would be in defense of one of my brothers or someone else. So it was always kind of convoluted. And that muddled thinking would show up both in five and two. I would, uh, the move to two would be in support of my brothers or just the eight wanting to, uh, yeah, champion, but it's true, it was about the, the little person in me, because every time I supported them, I felt better about that vulnerable part of me. Yeah. Uh -huh. And the five is that when I would be punished, I, um, 
I couldn't give away power. It's more like power vacuum. So I would, the mask of not just being a female, but also of being an eight, it was kind of confusing. I would show no emotion. And I kind of went to five and nine. It was, they collided in a way. And it, my father, uh, if he was carrying out the um, corporal punishment based on my mother determining the offense, it, didn't ever, it never felt sincere. He hadn't seen the offense in it. So I would just leave, basically, and never give in and never cry. And then my father couldn't keep uh, whipping me if I didn't cry. But I agonized over hearing my brothers cry or if they were in trouble because of my pushing the boundaries. So the excess, I'd be the one, let's go to the beach. The rule is we're supposed to be with an adult. They didn't say which adult. There are adults going to the beach. So there was always pushing up the boundaries. You know, it's, it was, it's, and yet I could say, well, I wasn't breaking the rule, but there was a part of me that knew that wasn't the intention, but they didn't say it. And it was their responsibility for not saying it. Get so, it in writing next time. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. And not wanting to be narrowed down to that. Mm -hmm. No, I did, never really wanted rules that specific. Now, of course, I did that with my own children. But uh, both both positively and negatively. My, my best research has come from going to five and taking myself out of the picture and letting my opinions just be that, my opinions, and listening to other people's experience and not tainting it and wanting it verbatim and wanting it pure and uncontaminated by, by my point of view. Right, right. That's the high side. The low side is that morbid part. I mean, it's, it's kind of embarrassing. I remember being really... Um, I'd always be amazed when my father would put on Hank Williams and songs like Your Cheatin' Heart or uh, Bagpipes, and I realized now that was his going to that place. And I, do, I, I have my version of it. I mean, you'd have to be a very close friend or be married to me, but uh, I go in between the molecules. Just I can go so away that I have no connection to any part of myself. And that it, if I did want to commit suicide, I'd do it. It, it would be no attempt. Yes, it would not be yeah. for attention. I would go. Right, right, right. So that's why I can't do it, because I would. Right. And too much is almost enough, so any excess, if I wanted something, I, I had to self-limit because I knew I would never stop if I really wanted something. Does that cover it? Yeah, <laughs> sounds like it. Is that an effective strategy to not uh, shed the tears so that you would cease and desist from the... I think it was, actually, because, I mean, having an eight father, he couldn't... I mean, I didn't know at the time, but it would jar. You, there's, no, there's no relief. There's no satisfaction. There's... I, I don't know. I, it was very bad for me, I think, because I had to learn to integrate feelings and emotions and naturally crying when I felt like crying. But, but yeah, he wasn't the kind of guy who wanted to beat little children. No. And so he lost, lost heart and lost the thread of it if you just didn't react. Right. And you, you won in a way, but it also probably foreshortened, or at least that was the idea. Well, I felt like I won because he didn't he didn't have the power to make me cry. Right. So right. that was the driving force. But inside, of course, there was just 
intense uh, rage and uh, energy that was being projected out that um, it's not like I went inside and down, it was out without a word. So there, a mutinous developed that I've had to learn, and the feminine probably, um, <laughs> not being supported to speak aggressively or assertively. Uh -huh, uh -huh, yeah. Did you identify with your mother at all? No, no, uh, I, to me she was like the antithesis. And she was everything I didn't want to be. What was her type? Four. <laughs> so I just married it. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I learned to really appreciate my mother. But at the time, I just reminded her of all her the things she felt inadequate about, and she reminded me of all the things that I didn't want to be. I didn't want to feel vulnerable. I didn't want to feel inadequate. I didn't want to feel like I couldn't survive in the world. And. Uh, she felt that way, and she f felt a sense of tragedy, and uh, I couldn't stand it. So I'd have to, I'd go the other extreme and fight for myself. Sure. Is anything to add? Uh, let's see. I had a five father and a two mother, five four wing, I guess, and a two three hysteric. And you said the other day that seemed to amplify sometimes. I guess it did for me for sure because. Uh, my father was an academic, and I'm studied mathematics as undergraduate and graduate student, so mm -hmm. has to be some five in me, right? Right. And uh, I'm struck the other day by how people get up and at these panels and and, and talk about their enneagram style, and um, then I you know I guess you can view view the enneagram as a kind of diagnostic tool, in a way, and and, and it's remarkable how their Enneagram style informs the strategy they used it as a diagnostic tool. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as an aid, it seems like I want to find the, the uh, limitations and choke them out, <laughs> which is not a really good approach. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that, that would be a new version of the same old thing. <laughs> Whereas I think, you know, I mean, you know, I think you were perfect in the three style, which is you wanted to be a better three finding the limitations than anybody else could be <laughs> so so it's yeah yeah you know so it's 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 like no matter what we do we can't escape our own thinking our own pattern well that there's a pattern to it and the pattern's being expressed all the time and played out yeah. all the time yeah but you can get a lot freer within it yeah so once you choke off all your vulnerabilities and, <laughs> and stomp them to death. <laughs> yeah, there is that. That's, so, but, you know, in the same vein of, uh, you know, thinking, because um, I had this amplified two part, I think I could be a better two than most twos, because, of course, I'm a competitor, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Throwing down the you know, gauntlet. I eat them. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, I but had a it's strong connection to both. And yeah, uh -huh. that's kind of unusual, too, to have to your two parents represent your two stress and security yeah. points. It's relatively rare. Yeah. And, you know, as far as addictions go, there have been times when um, I've definitely wanted to do things that would lead to addictions, but then the thought of becoming a victim of myself yeah. becomes so abhorrent, I have to stop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
And you said you quit smoking because no smoking signs were starting to appear in the world, right? Well, right. I'd be with clients, and then my whole, my whole job was PR and taking them to breakfast, lunch, dinner, coffee. And then I would be in a situation where they'd want to be in no smoking, and I couldn't have a cigarette, and I couldn't deal with that limitation, anything controlling me. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 So that's how, yeah, that's how I dealt with it, because it was too, felt too controlling. Mm -hmm. I love that part. You carried the cigarettes around so that you could have the control of saying no to them. Right. <laughs> I would carry the cigarettes and keep them fresh, get new ones just like I ordinarily would, and then say, you're not going to win. <laughs> you know? So it was, like, it was like dealing with my family, you know, over and over again. It was like the not crying, uh, and so then I won, not the cigarettes. Kirk Douglas said that it was also an aide. He said he quit smoking by holding a cigarette out, and he's saying, who's stronger, you or me? <laughs> That's what I did. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you about the connection to two. Do you recognize a high side and a low side to it? Uh, my mother's um, two behavior of going uh, crazy was abhorrent to me. So um, I don't see that in myself. But on the other hand, maybe there's a shadow that's creeping out trying to grab me. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I mean, I can definitely, I can definitely feel other people in many strange ways so that uh, I know what they're feeling most uh -huh. of the time pretty clearly and uh, I know what they want and uh, I know what their vulnerabilities are. It's actually too overwhelming to me because I get too much information in about the people around me and right. um, I know exactly what makes them happy and what makes them unhappy and it's easy to see what makes them happy and sometimes I have a tendency to want to go make them happy and that's just, you know, exhausting. Well, that was what I was wondering because, you know, the low side of it, you can get into codependence. Ah, well then, okay, then I do, well, codependence. Like feeling responsible for somebody else, I've got to make them happy, whatever they say. So oh, yeah, that's a big you know, one placating. for me. Yeah, all right, so then, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, I would say that was a big one for me, yeah almost on automatic pilot where right. I, I fix things without them even know, knowing that they went wrong, generally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Maybe taking a role of a protector in some way, automatically, uh, obligationally, that, yeah. Yeah. With, without ever stopping to think, well, wait a minute, you know, why don't they do it? Or can't they do it? Or Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Am I making them weak by doing it for them? Well, well, well. you know, having a little ethical crisis about it. I, I, I've definitely had that kind of behavior. So is that the low side too? Yeah, it's a kind of obligated codependence. The compulsive element of it is I have to. Sort of like the compulsive element of the low side of two is, you know, I see so David needs a glass of water, I have to give him a glass of water. It's a siren song of help. Yeah, and David may not even say I need a glass of water, I may just hallucinate it. Which or, as I was saying before, I want a glass of water, and so my medium for getting a glass of water is giving one to David, that kind of deal. But it can make for uh, sticky stuff, sticky relationships sometimes, because you get confused about your own boundaries and then the other person gets confused about theirs, or they get used to you protecting them. And I'm guilty of that too. <laughs> help me to help you to help me overcome my codependence. Tom, the thing that you say that's so intriguing is that you keep them, I don't know how you said it actually, because it's not my language, but that they stay disempowered because you are doing it for them. Yeah. 
was, it doesn't even come into my consciousness. I had to learn that. And with my sixth son, realized that he had everything from me from the time he was by, at least by 12, and uh -huh. that I just had to let him retrieve it. Find his own support within himself, yeah. But it was never a conscious intent to keep him in any way disempowered. Because it was just the opposite. Well, I thought over, I was supporting and empowering yeah, him. That's right. And moreover, the idea is, well, I'm going to protect him, and ultimately my goal is his well-being. And then if you stood back and the idea was to empower him, and then ultimately your goal was his well-being, you know, it would be two ways <laughs> to reach the same goal. You know. Okay, well, let me talk about the wings, because I think we have a good contrast up here yet again. Eight with a seven wing and eight with a nine wing are pretty different from each other usually. With a seven wing, there's also often more extroversion. A person's often more expansive and obviously within their power, kind of obviously more energetic, having a kind of aura about them, and sometimes a gregariousness or a bravado or a self-confidence that can go with it, and also a generosity. Also, if the person has good social skills, they could feel forceful, but they could just have a light touch at the same time. The playful, fast-moving elements of sevenness combining with the force of eight, and it can make for a, an intriguing and charming combination. It could be a, a good sense of humor, sense of humor about themselves. Somebody could be like a sociable party-goer. They might talk a little louder than other people in the room, and this is modified by the subtype. And generally, I would say there's a happy gene in there somewhere. Not always, not with every eight with a seven wing, but a lot of them have happy genes. And there'll be a cheerful, forward-looking impetus, a desire to go forward, often more ambitious and materialistic than eights with nine wings, although that can modify according to the circumstance as well. Also, there's a kind of visionary quality about this particular constellation or combination and entrepreneurial tendencies tendency to bring something into being and maybe dream big and do it on a big scale or not, depending on what they want. But no hesitation about doing it if they feel like it's the right thing to do and a kind of interest in it, a kind of daring almost that, that could go with it. And I was talking before about tycoons and social reformers and people who are willing to operate on a big scale. And they, they see something that needs doing and they set themselves the task of changing it. Or they create something for themselves out of thin air and that satisfies them materialistically and maybe even has a service orientation tie-in. But being able to dream up big plans in your mind's eye, being able to see things through your visual imagination and be conscious of visual imagery. It's one thing to be visual but not see the images. I, for instance, would say that about myself. I'm fairly auditory and kinesthetic, but I visualize. I just don't see the images very clearly unless I stop and focus on them. So if somebody did a trance with me or did a visualization with me, that might be one of the things they might want to lead me into is seeing clearly in my mind's eye because that would represent an altered state with respect to my normal state of consciousness. But if somebody else is very visual and you have them do visualization, it's, it, it usually has very little impact because they're just sitting there thinking, well, this is what I do already, you know, and I can see this, this, and this. And so visualizing in your mind's eye would not be an altered state in such a case and is something that comes more naturally with this style, just dreaming up big things and using your inner eye. Now, the person could still have trouble with vision when it came to looking at themselves or seeing themselves in the mirror or looking at their own behavior. That might be an area where they could go blind periodically even though they are more visual and even though they seem they, they see more clearly than other eights, let's say. 
And you can be good at seeing options and you can be flexible and strategic in the exercise of achieving a goal. When you're more in the trance of it with the seven wing, the eight's lust for life and the seven's gluttony form a tendency towards addiction. And the person will have to wrestle with that at some point or another. Even if they don't submit to it, even if they stay well clear of most actual addictions, it's still a tussle for them at some point. Still a temptation, still something that they have to work strategically around or something that they have to deal with or work on in therapy or something like that. Also, there can be a, a reactionary quality within this, a hot-headedness, an excitability, and you could be prone to temperamental ups and downs sometimes, or, or be moody or, or quick to anger. I've known some eights with seven wings who create chaos, sort of wherever they go, and have a tendency to blast through things and leave a lot of debris in their wake, not necessarily destroying what they're doing. They're on their way to creating something or it's in the service of a task, but there's this kind of you know, it's like stages of a rocket or something, or it's leave, like leaving a lot, of, a lot of debris in your wake. You know, maybe realizing that and then going back and cleaning it up, but nevertheless having the, the drive to go forward quite fast. There can also be a distinct materialistic tendency within the low side of the style that gets the better of them, where they've got to have stuff. They've got to have money. They've got to acquire. They've quite a drive to acquire. And I was saying earlier about sevens with eight wings, there may also be a materialistic streak and underneath it a fear that they will be deprived. The anticipation of deprivation, it, it, it's fear-based. With eights, it's not fear-based. It's more like, I've got to get this stuff in order to survive, but also it's related to the belief only the strong survive. And so why not push as hard as you can to get what you want? Also, there's a restlessness that goes with a seven wing. You go across the board, I've seen it in really unhealthy sevens with eight wings who, who just could not stop moving. And there was a tycoon type guy in Europe named Robert Maxwell. He died about 10 years ago. And he was a, very famous as a boss from hell and as a high profile tycoon and a self-made man and a pretty unpleasant chap. But one of the things that somebody who knew him said after he died was the driving force of his life was a fear of boredom and therefore the need for activity. Not action always, but activity. It is any activity, all activity, as much activity as possible, all the time. He has no friends, no pals, no hobbies, no interests, nothing except activity. That can be a drive also within, within the seven wing on the, you know, the unhealthy expression of it. And then eight with a nine wing, it's quite a bit different. Often there's a quality of calm and a slower tempo. They're usually not very visual at least explicitly visual or consciously visual or leading with their eyes. Usually they're more auditory and kinesthetic and to a lesser degree visual or they talk to themselves and get feelings first and then they see something in their mind's eye. Whereas with a seven wing you see it first and then you feel it or something like that. The slower tempo goes with the auditory and kinesthetic processing. You know, I was talking yesterday about how when people are really visual, it's like drawing pictures in the air and they have this real quick tempo and they're pointing at things that they can see in a visual person. You can talk a mile a minute because you're thinking a mile a minute. And as an auditory person, there's a tendency to speak in a more even rhythmic tempo, sometimes a flat monotone that has a consistent cadence to it. And then if you are around somebody who's extremely kinesthetic and who's very feeling oriented, they might talk real slow and with long pauses to get a sense for 
how they feel. And so obviously the visual tempo and the, uh, the kinesthetic tempo are quite a bit different. One's quite a bit faster than the other. And then with eights with nine wings, I find most often there's a kind of even rhythmic in between tempo that is indicative of auditory accessing and auditory and kinesthetic loops that the person goes into. On the high side, there can be an aura of preternatural calm, uh, kind of like uh, somebody who hasn't had a self-doubt since they were 16 years old. Be an utter assumption of my authority, my power, my place in the room, my right to be here, my relationship to the space around me. It's not a quality of entitlement either. It's just like a, an utter confidence in your own power and in your own place. You just feel it throughout your body. You take your authority for granted, and usually it's, a, it's the authority of a king or a queen, not a prince or a princess. It's adult authority that way. It's not descended royalty. And there's a quality even of not needing to show off your strength. You're that strong. You just take it for granted. The, you can affect your environment in any way that you need to, and you're confident that you'll respond with, to whatever happens. In the meantime, you're very grounded. It's you're like your feet are anchored to the center of the earth. There can also be a nine-like quality in the manner of someone's uh, speech and in their affect, where they don't move much. And they're kind of receptive. And they listen to others. Can be mild-mannered, gentle, soft-hearted, or kind of like a gentle paterfamilias. Could be nurturing parents uh, with a, a kind of tender, steady, supportive quality. Uh, even if they lose their temper once in a while, generally they go back to a baseline of being informal and unpretentious and patient and laconic. Generally, there's some introversion with this wing and sometimes a dry sense of humor. And also, sometimes are hard to, harder to identify as eights when people are struggling with getting good at identifying Enneagram styles. They have trouble with eights with nine wings because they seem like nines. And then there's also a sensitivity. Even if it's not real emotional, they can be really sensitive to nuance and nonverbal behavior and aware of their environments and aware of the needs and expectations of others. More oriented to the present than the future. It can have a future orientation to some degree, to the degree they're in their wing and are planning ahead and taking the long view and looking at the big picture and having long-term goals, let's say, for instance. And then if somebody is more in the trance of this with eight with a nine wing, they go into numbness quite easily. And it's a kind of non-feeling state where you are uh, unruffled and you may have emotions in a subterranean sort of way, but you don't really feel them. They don't really register. Or maybe they register later. or Maybe you realize later on you were upset about something. From the outside, somebody could see this and it would look like a sleeping volcano because you can feel a kind of anger under the surface sometimes when the person goes numb. There's a kind of simmering quality. They might look like a large, probably friendly bear, but you don't know for sure. You can't quite tell. But you can feel this anger underneath and you can feel the power underneath, but the person doesn't really express it. And in their own awareness, they feel kind of numb. They feel out of touch. You could be emotionally cooler and calmly dominating. Or you could start to, within this numbness, grow indifferent to softer emotions, not quite get some of the, the nuances in your environment because you're not really paying attention because you shut it off in yourself, so you're not noticing it so much in other people. Also, there can be a deadpan, poker-faced sort of front that the person could put on or it could be in their manner. I, I remember one time sitting in a workshop and this woman sat in the front row. She was an eight with a nine wing and she just kind of looked at me for the first session of the workshop and everything about her said go to hell 
She never said a word. She just sat there and looked at me. And she didn't particularly sneer or do anything demonstrative. She looked inert and stationary, but what it felt like was she was seething. And the following morning, she decided she trusted me enough to pick a fight with me. And then after we'd fought for a while, then she kind of came around. And then after that, it was fine. But the first presentation was just impassive, really hard to read. We found out later she was not only an eight with a nine wing, but like her mother had been an eight, or grandmother had been an eight, or great-grandmother had been an eight. And it was like she'd come from some species, you know, something. <laughs> and so there can be an implicitly challenging attitude sometimes that says something like, I'm bored, do something. I dare you to contradict my cynicism. I've come to a conclusion that people aren't really worth much. Do something to prove me wrong. Well, one person said about an eight with a nine wing, he said, uh, even when I talk to her on the phone, I feel like she's staring at me. <laughs> Can also be prone to boredom that masks a depressive self-absence. When the person goes into numbness, it mimics depression in a way. If they go far enough into it, it is in effect depression. The person can also start to look like they are dead no affect and no expression on their face. It's like doing an impression of a dead person, it's like you're mimicking it. Now nines can get into this as well. And eights with a nine wing will sometimes have that sort of thing, but it's less passive and it's less defeated. You know, I'm a dead person who can take care of himself compared to somebody who is just put upon, feels morose and more passively resigned. And that's often to me an indicator of clinical depression. And then farther down into the trance of it, you can get into real warped acts of revenge, ill-conceived sorts of enterprises. I used to have a private practice. I lived in Berkeley about 10 years ago. And Carol and I used to bounce clients back and forth to one another. It was not unusual at all. And at one time, a man made an appointment with Carol, which he didn't show up for. And what he wanted was hypnosis so he could remember a license plate. He made an appointment with Carol, broke the appointment, didn't show made an appointment with me for the next day, and he did show up for that. I interviewed him a little bit, seemed all right, he wanted to use hypnosis in this way, and it was something that I hadn't done in a while. And so I got hooked. And what I got hooked in was, oh yes, this is an interesting technique, you know, and I haven't tried this for a while. And so I was focused on the technique of what I was doing, and I wasn't thinking farther than that. So I get the guy into a trance, I should have known, uh, in the middle of the trance, it suddenly all came to me. I thought, this guy's a drug dealer. And he wanted a license plate if somebody had ripped him off. And I was like, oh my God. And I'd already done it. I'd already succeeded in my little technique, you know, and, <laughs> and gotten the guy his license plate. So I left him in a trance for a while. And the best I could do under the circumstances was give him a lecture on becoming a better person. <laughs> and, uh, in a very indirect sort of way. You know, it wasn't a hectoring lecture, but I did all kinds of stuff. And I thought, damn it, I regret that session to this day. I don't know what he did with that information. Yeah, he knew he was an eight, too. He announced it. And he was an eight with a nine wing. He just sat there and passive and kind of pliant, he seemed, and kind of receptive. But underneath it, there was a determined anger. And he was out on a mission of revenge of some kind. And I helped him. The very depth of the whole thing would be in somebody like Joseph Stalin, numb dictator. Stalin was like a dead man uh, walking, and he, he was responsible for the death of lots of people. And he was just disassociated and capable of breathtakingly, sweepingly cruel things that he was disconnected from. And that's the, the profound expression of that numbness, when you're really far gone down the rabbit hole of it. 
it's a, just an utterly dissociated mentality. And Stalin and Mao Zedong, I would also say, would be the same sort of character. And Kemal Ataturk, the founder of modern Turkey, was like this too. They started out with an intention to help masses of people, and then they just got lost within it. They got lost within preserving their power, and that became the central thing. And then they did incredible damage while they were preserving their own power. And Milosevic is another one like this. Uh, he's an eight with a nine wing. Same deal. All he did was preserve his power and do damage and just act in malignant ways. And you're just so blind within it and so numb within it that you don't know what you're doing. Now that's acting it out on a big scale and profoundly unhealthy, the, the negative extreme of it. Can anybody say anything about what they respond to or? Well, I definitely present as the seven wing. I have the nine wing and that's kind of when I'm in the attitude of, you know, talk to the hand. It's like there's nothing left. There is that kind of um, moral indifference is when I have stopped. But most of the time I'm in the seven pacing and I'm fascinated by things and I'm, I'm never really bored. I'm so defended against being bored that I'm not bored because I can find anything fascinating. The pattern, uh, voices, systems, and the search for the material has been to more a refusal of, of wanting to go without rather than wanting to consciously be material. The excesses are to ensure that I don't have to not have something, even uh -huh. if it was Band-Aids. Right, right, right. Uh, there'll be the big container every size of Band-Aids. Um, the, my pacing, it's, it's when I've dropped into the nine side, my nine wing that I have the best and worst moments. The best is that I can really meet the other person. A lot of my coaching work, I'm in the nine wing rather than the seven. I've slowed everything down. My pacing, uh, my tempo matches the other person and I can really be receptive. Those are probably the highest moments, mm -hmm. two mm -hmm. and nine. But most of my life is lived at a pace that where I'm either kicking my foot or my mind is actively going. I don't sleep much. I feel the energy just coming off of me, even if I'm depressed. It's, it's excessively there. And um, the need to move. I, I feel so much of the time like people will describe me more like the eight with a nine wing until I'm next to an eight with a nine wing. And then you can just see that there's no comparison, the energy, the movement, even if I hold perfectly still. And is there something you like about the high side of seven? I'm never bored. And I, I love exploring. I can, uh, everything's an adventure. Mm -hmm. And even what I don't like and I refuse to do once I embark on doing it, I. I, that I like the childlike, and I don't mean childish, I mean the childlike wonder of eight and seven coming together and, this, and the seven's delight that takes me out of that hardcore need to be the parent in charge and fill the power vacuum. I love what the seven does. Or the enterprising, or the visualization to just say, okay, here's a system, here's a model, I see it, now I just have to get the pieces to support it. I love that. How about you? Anything you respond um, to? When I first was introduced to the Enneagram, I thought I was a seven. 
But then an expert came along and said, no, I was really an eight with a nine wing. But I, you know, after looking at it again and again and again, I, I, I keep thinking my earlier life was a eight with a seven wing. I mean, I've mm -hmm. started companies. Uh, I'm highly visual in the sense that you described. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I'm highly auditory too. Um, mm -hmm. Well, it could be a mixture of both. It's not one or the other. Could be equally both. Also, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that I'm having feelings unless I get a body sensation. Um, then I know I'm feeling something if I get a body sensation, but otherwise, not there. Right. Um, right. I always got confused <laughs> about the word emotion and feeling because it seemed to me that why did they have a word called emotion when it was just feelings? Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I still don't really understand the difference. Kind of makes the whole thing more complicated than it has to be. Yeah. <laughs> And, and you know, sensation, you know, that Maxwell thing. Um, mm -hmm. Chronic activity? Yeah, I mean, I, I would actually try to take on more things than I can do. Not so many things I get crushed, but you know, if I could do it to here, I'd try to go up to here. Right. Because the idea was to seek defeat in order to defeat defeat, if uh -huh. you can get it. And I only knew I was alive if I started to feel like I was failing. Because uh -huh. then I, you know, then I get this wonderful sensation of being alive, uh -huh. you know. And, but you know, as I've gotten older, I think I do probably have this nine part because uh, I can get calm sometimes, and uh, I don't know if I'm still visual when I'm calm, but I think I am. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I guess I, I became calmer because I left too many bodies in my way. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not really good to leave bodies everywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. not, not metaphysically, uh, metaphorically. <laughs> <laughs> physically? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. But doing do more harm than you intend to. Especially in running business, I try to get people to do things. And um, if I didn't get them to do it by persuasion, I'd try to force them to do it, and then that would cause bodies everywhere. So hard to find good help nowadays. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I guess I have both parts, but I would say that in my younger life, the the seven part was much more prevalent. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think I would say that I must have both parts that I can go from one to the other, but it's like a very totally different change in mental state mm -hmm. when that happens. Yeah, experientially, they can be pretty different. Yeah, feel pretty different, seem pretty different, even from the outside, but also inside. So if I'm in the seven state, I never know about the nine state. Maybe. Mm -hmm. The nine state, I don't know about seven state. I don't know. Right, right. Yeah, maybe you could get them closer together sometime. <laughs> Anybody have any questions or comments before we take a break? Yes, uh, who do you choose like, to establish your strategic alliances? I'm curious, like, what kind of people, you, do you actually target certain t types? Or is it anybody who agrees with you? Or Me? Yes. Strategic yeah, alliances yeah. in a personal sense, in a business well, sense? You know, the eight, the eight with the nine wing often have these strategic alliances when they want something or they want something done. I've seen it with seven wings. Yeah. So we were kind of talking about it more in terms of that. I'm not so sure about the nine yeah, wing part of it. Yeah, it's more over here. I, I don't know that I make strategic alliances. Well, just 
terms of alliances, let me draw the question. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Well, do you, do, for instance, do you think of business as war? Uh, it can be war. It definitely can be war. It depends on who's on the other side. You know, so basically there are companies out there whose culture is war-driven. Right. And their culture, you know, there are companies out there whose cultures are not. You have to figure out from the, um, the interactions you have with the people coming in what kind of group you're dealing with. Which it is, yeah. yeah. And when you're not at war, is business a, a game? I don't think it's ever a game. I mean, it's, 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 it's serious and you're trying to build something that uh, takes care of a group of people that all work in the same place. Right. And so it's a family. Yeah, and you're trying to, um, you know, do something useful for the world as a whole in general, right. at least I am anyway. Right. And, right. Uh, you know, I'd hate to actually work at something that had very little meaning. Right, right, yeah. I've always survived by strategic alliances. It wasn't a conscious thing, and, but it was never someone that just agreed with me because they were the most dangerous. Someone that could just so easily agree with me could agree with anyone else. It would be more people where the relationship had been tested and survived. Plus, if you can intimidate the person, then it means you can't trust them. They could be intimidated by someone else. Yeah. And sell you out and sell you out or they, they won't be able to stand up to you anyway in the long run and when times get tough and so. So would you choose like an aide who would challenge you to be a, an, an ally? I would choose someone I respected. It could be any type. Uh, someone that would be a worthy opponent even if they were an alliance. So I would respect their differences and their strengths. Strong in some way. Mm -hmm. Maybe in a way I'm not. Yeah. Yeah, I always look for people to tell me all things I'm doing wrong. Okay. So the people that can tell me all things I haven't thought about, I'm holding high value. Right, yeah. right. Because, uh, the right. Yeah, yeah so. Knowledge, uh, yeah. yeah, I have no fear of, you know, somebody saying they know something better than I do because then I want that person around me. And I have no fear of, of appearing to look stupid because I don't care. <laughs> right? <I> mean, <laughs> you don't so know about that. <laughs> sometimes I'm sometimes I'm stupid, so yeah. I wonder with your sophistication now and no knowledge of the Enneagram if you're able to handle fives better. Because my poor five husband has a tough time dealing with eights, and eights who have not understood the Enneagram will just write fives off completely because you know, a five has a tendency to avoid conflict. And even though they may be a wealth of knowledge, they'll be intimidated by the eight's energy and will back down rather than go forward. And I'm just wondering, now that you understand the Enneagram, if you identify somebody as a five, would you be more patient in drawing them out? Or but you assume that they, were, that they had the reaction that you're describing as though... Yeah, I'm Asking them if they do have that reaction. I'm they not do? assuming anything. Okay. In my experience, the knowing what I know now, I see the strength of every single type. So it's really hard to go back to another perspective. My fixation will still come up. I will still challenge anything that's at odds with my view of truth in the moment. But if I go back to before I knew the Enneagram, I would not like the withholding of the five. I would wonder what was motivating that and behind that, and I'd want to push on that to find out. 
You bet. So I would miss um, assign that, project that onto the five. Because I had a five father, because I'm surrounded by fives in my workplace, I'm very comfortable with the fact that they're find me too pushy. Is the only way to describe it. So I tend to try to come up to them very slowly and tell them I'm coming in advance and what it is I'm going to talk about. And Switch back your way up to their desk. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, never ask them for something directly. I say, you might consider, you know, give them plenty of time to think about why they might not want to do it, but then leave before they have a chance to answer. <laughs> yeah, I want you to think about this. Well, in terms of strategizing, you said, were you talking about just business or personal? Is it the same strategy in both business and personal? Me or both of you? Handle it first. For me, it's it's unconscious, so it's both. The strategy is to want to have, especially with my subtype, it's about connection, devotion, knowing what I can count on, and I worked business relationships the same exact way, built intimacy one on one, had the connections, and then. It was like a friend of mine described it like the, the strategic game of battleship. So I would end up having relationships, one-on-one -on -one relationships all over so that I was covered. But it was not a conscious strategy. When it became more conscious, then I was aware of it. And I do that with my friends. I mean, I can count on my friends more than I even knew, to be honest. So I don't think I can separate them. But I'll bet if you talked for five minutes about your friends, you wouldn't use one war metaphor. And you just did in talking about business. No, they wouldn't. No. You know, if I were to try to answer the same question, I, I guess I would say that um, it's much harder to become friends with people in a business situation because the motivations, the loyalties, and the what they want shift so much. So. I, th I guess I tend to think of personal relationships differently than I do business relationships. And the, the personal relationships, I'm definitely, there's part of me that's definitely interested in people that I can talk to um, and have um, conversations which I don't, you know, in which I'm constantly learning new things. So maybe that reminds me of what the woman, the five, because she was saying that she doesn't like to be in conversations and parties unless she's learning something. And, I mean, I don't mind being in conversations with people where I'm learning very little, but, but it's, it's definitely true that I'd, I definitely like some friendships in which the person knows and has something that's far better than I have. But I don't know how much that's a significant part of it. It's some part of it. That's the kind of the cognitive part. There's emotional parts too, but... Moving from the business to the personal realm, I heard you talk about your relationship with your father where the conflict was important. You'd go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, you'd respect each other, you'd kind of disarm each other. I understand that that's an important part of a personal relationship with an eight, that they actually don't mind the conflict. Do you have any advice about how to handle that conflict? I mean, my husband's an eight, and I think we go toe-to-toe, -to -toe and it usually works pretty well, but he also manages his anger a lot. You know, so he doesn't like to get angry because he knows that he can get really angry. And so I'm kind of interested in that, 
how confrontation and going toe-to-toe can be um, helpful and it's, it's important, I think, in dealing with an eight, but I'd like to know a little more about that. Personally, mm-hmm. I would say that one of the big misconceptions is that you need to just meet a hate, an eight, hate. Uh, you might hate to meet an eight head on, but because there's this uh, sparring ability of not giving in, of being able to retrieve things, I don't know where they come from. So that's, that never really works, especially with the seven wing. I can just retrieve something else that's in my arsenal. But the, um, oops, <laughs> back at work. <laughs> yeah, I was, called, I was called the velvet dart in business, and uh, I don't think anymore, but. And it was actually a compliment, I, uh, but I didn't like it. But what my, my point being that in a personal relationship, it's, I want someone that can stand up to me, but more importantly, for me because one without the other doesn't work. So you've got to be able to get back in my face, but also fight me for me, because if I'm that far gone, I need to know that you can be strong enough to see that I'm really hurting when I don't know it. So that's where my dependency shows up. And the business of fighting with an aid is limited in a way. One of the things that's really important within it, I think, is to do so with respect and to fight on an equal basis. If you try to one-up the person or they try to one-up you and then you fight back, if there's that kind of unequal dynamic, it gets really sticky then. You know, a person can dig in quite a bit more. There's a thing also in NLP. You do a technique called pacing where you match somebody's energy and you match somebody's behavior. And... When you match, you get rapport, and then once you get enough rapport, then you change what you're doing, and often if you have enough rapport with the person, they'll follow. What this could mean, say, with an eight is if somebody's confrontational, you're confrontational back, they're a little more confrontational, you're confrontational back, and then you try to lower the tone, lower the decibels, and see if they'll follow. Maybe they won't, but maybe they will. I go to Europe a lot, and I fly back into Portland, Oregon a lot, and I stay at this one hotel, and there's this woman there who's an eight, and she's the night manager, and she's, she just doesn't have very many social skills, but she runs the hotel. You know, call for the shuttle, and you're off a 15-hour flight from Europe, and she gives you a hard time about whether you really have your luggage or not, or is it just coming? Because if it's just coming, we're not sending the shuttle. You have to really have it in your hand. Is it in your hand? You know, and it's like, ay, ay, ay. And so I stumbled into this place a few times, sort of jet-lagged, and found myself doing this very thing, where the woman says something cranky, and I say something cranky back to her, and then I say, is it a tough night tonight? And she softens. And that's the pacing and leading of it. And you can do that with any of the styles, and it'd be a good workshop sometime in terms of applying that particular communication technique to communicating with various styles. And there are a number of other techniques that are attendant to it that work real well. But the notion of pacing and then leading, once you match it, try to come off of it and maybe the other person will come off of it. If they can't, then you go back and you match it some more and then try it again. And that works really well sometimes. The key thing is respecting that my intention was honorable, even if I messed up. Like, I know you didn't mean this. I know you're really protective. I know you were whatever, but I was hurt by this. If you can just at least diffuse it by respecting that I wasn't intending to do whatever I did, right. really helps. <laughs> yeah, I, I, 
You know, I would agree with the last thing in particular because generally speaking, I'm trying to be motivated to try to help, you know, in some situations. If somebody tells me I deliberately did something that was underhanded, it just brings out some rage. But the other thing that drives me nuts is if the person doesn't tell me what they're really feeling or, as I found out much to my horror, sometimes they don't know what they're feeling but they want to feel a certain way so they say one thing but they do something else. That was a source of endless confusion for me because in that case that's where the person has no coherence inside of themselves and it turns out there's a number of people that don't have coherence. Also, let's say you're in a war, yeah. you really need to know who your friends are. And so that kind of thing can matter. Somebody lies or they're inconsistent, incongruent in some way. That stuff matters more because of the stakes are higher. I've seen people who say, and they really want to believe what they say, you know, you know, X is Y or something. Yet there's another part of them that doesn't believe that at all. And they're not aware of the other part. And I didn't, you know, realize people like that could exist because I don't exist that way. And <laughs> It was, it was such a horrible thought to understand the world that way. But once I got it, it became a lot easier because I, you know, I will be in situations where people with the best intention you know, really want to be one thing, but in fact there's something else, but, and they don't know it. And that drives me nuts when that happens. Right, and they don't know themselves. That yeah. really is saving. Yeah, and it, you it's know, crazy. even if I tell the other yeah. person, you know, oh, you've got this you know, inconsistency here, if you bring the inconsistency together in the same room as nuclear fission because they don't want to know it. Right. And that just drives me nuts when that happens. So it took me a long time to figure that one out. Did you want to say something? Um, well, earlier when I was talking about fives maybe not being uh, comfortable with eights, I just need to say that I, I think sometimes that, that may be true for some fives, but for myself and some others I know who are fives, I'm highly attracted to eights. I can go to a party and not know a bunch of people, and I'm attracted to every eight in the room practically. Uh, I think um, I'm not afraid of their energy. It's, it's <laughs> what, what, a, what, what attracts me to the eights, other than the fact that I go to eight because I am a five, which might be being forgotten, is <laughs> I can go there real quick, is that um, they're very direct and very honest, and I feel like I know what I'm buying. I know what I'm getting. So for a five, it's very important to feel the truth and that there's a reality to the person they're talking to, that especially if I go to my sixth wing, it's like there's no hidden agenda. I'm not having to worry about, does this person really mean what they're saying, or, or is there 10 other motives going on? So my sixth wing is very relaxed and happy to be with an eight. <laughs> And so I do the pacing you're talking about with the eight and get them on my side immediately and I feel this really strong bond usually with them. And so it's not a feeling of withdrawal and, you know, I don't know how... Yeah, it's just every, every, everybody's different, yeah. you know. We were just comparing notes. She has an eight spouse and I have a five and mine goes to eight really easily and hers goes to five really easily. Mm -hmm. so. Is no problem. Right. Yeah, yeah, no problem. That's my experience. Mm -hmm. In relation to a comment that was made by someone, when you were a little girl and you confronted your father in, on behalf of your brothers, you felt like you were doing something right. And if you got whipped, so to speak, I, I don't necessarily mean physically, 
you you said earlier that you went into that you had a lot of anger about it. Oh, the yes, the anger was. And you wouldn't cry. You weren't giving him the satisfaction of you crying. Is, is would that be the, the injustice to me? Was that my mother had uh, determined that I had done something wrong, and he was in the position of having to be the disciplinarian, and he didn't know what the offense was. So and the injustice. Were you angry at mom or at dad? And what did it do to you about yourself? I was. If I'm not too I was. Here. I was angry uh, about the injustice, and it kind of was the way the two came together: the the mismatching, the miscommunication, the overreacting of both parents. My mom really didn't want that extreme of punishment. My dad didn't even want to melt out the punishment. So it was incongruent that crazy-making part. And, but the injustice was that uh, my brothers were being punished along with me because they supposedly were supposed to know better because they were older. Now, at this, at this point, I'm like three and four years old, so you're talking about a brother that's four, brothers that are four and six, so that they would be accountable for my ringleader kind of tendencies felt very unjust. It was the injustice that was the motivating factor. Yeah. So the anger was against the injustice. Right. Okay. Thank you so much. Always. Always. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much.